should be one in front of you in one of the chairs. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that this morning. It'd be our gift to you. Uh, but Mark chapter 6 is where we will be, uh, verses 45 to 56. Uh, we're going to be looking at a familiar story or account that Mark gives us. Uh, we, we're familiar with Jesus walking on the water. It's just one of those stories that we grew up with. It's one of those uh, gospel accounts that we remember from when we are a little kid. And, and there's some things here that I want us to hone in on and focus on. And as Mark has been presenting to us who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do, he's been equally presenting before us the call of discipleship. And this is going to actually hit a, a climactic moment where Jesus even says, the, you've got to count the cost. If you're going to follow me, you've got to count the cost. But he's been uh, walking us through, as he records about the disciples, this idea of discipleship. And, and oftentimes, through his gospel account, Mark records that the disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They didn't see. They didn't have faith in Jesus. And if you think back a few weeks ago to where they were in the boat and Jesus calmed the storm, they were, they were terrified of the storm, but they were even more afraid of the man in the boat with them who had just calmed the storm. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he walks now on water and, and there's a, a lack of understanding in the disciples' minds. And for you and I, that should be, that should be a sense and place of hope because Jesus never expected them to get everything perfect. In fact, he commissioned them when they still had a long way to go in their understanding. He released them and set them free to go and minister to people, and they did not get it. We will get to a point in a few chapters where Peter confesses who Jesus is, and then in the next breath pulls him aside to rebuke him. I mean, the, the, the antithetical nature of those two statements are just ironic. But here's a man who didn't get it. And if we even think post-resurrection, post-indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there are often occurrences where the disciples still don't get it. They're not perfect men, and there should be great hope for you and I. Because we're not perfect men and women. And rather than perfection, what you see demonstrated in the lives of the disciples, and then even in the training and discipling of Jesus of these men, is that he's, he's working on them in regards to direction. He's training them. He's discipling them. And there should be great encouragement for us because he took men that were willing and he discipled them. And he used these imperfect but willing men to be the leaders of the church. And these are actually men that you and I still look up to and find, uh, find hope and encouragement in. They're the men whose writings we still read, but these aren't men that get it. And so as you and I have this mission to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples, there, there's great hope here. There's great hope. Hope here, and really the big idea for us this morning is that we need to learn how to see spiritually and not just 
physically. And I really believe that's, that's one of the main points of our passage here in Mark. And I'll show it to you real quick. And we're going to jump to the end, if you would, with me to verse 51. And then we're going to go back to the beginning. We'll work our way to the end. But Mark records, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Now, it's not wrong to be astounded by a miracle of Jesus. It's not, it's not uncommon. It's not out of the, the ordinary to see something Jesus did and go, wow. But look at the reason Mark gives us for their astonishment. He provides that. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The loaves is in reference to Jesus' feeding of the 20,000 when he had just given a meal to 5,000 men plus women and children, upwards of fifteen to 20,000 individuals. And the disciples were the servers and Jesus provided for the needs of the people that were there. He provided for the needs of the servers and they collected 12 baskets of food after they were done. And then he gets them in the boat. The wind ceases. He walks on the water and they go, oh my goodness. And Mark says they didn't understand. There was something they didn't see in Jesus' miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 men that they were supposed to have seen. Perhaps, as I would submit to you, they were just looking at things from a physical perspective and had missed the spiritual point as well. And we need to see spiritually, not just physically. And so I want to pray with us this morning that the Lord may just even give us eyes to see because it's it's really by His grace that we have this sight anyways. And where this spiritual sight is lacking, it's Him and His grace that we need to provide. It's not anything you and I are going to do or muster up or something that we we can conjure up within ourselves. It's, It's Him and His graciousness giving us what it is that we don't have. And so let's draw near now as needy people, and ask him to provide for those needs. Would you join me? Father God, thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here together, to be amongst your people, to uh, be encouraged by our, our, our togetherness. And Lord, we pray that you would come and meet with us in a special way now. God, we pray that you do something here and and you would teach us from your word and that you may give us the eyes to see that we may not have. And Lord, where we, like myself, are so prone to see the physical first and not the spiritual, God, I pray that you would give me what I am lacking, that my eyesight would, would learn to be first spiritually and secondly physical. God, we thank you for what Jesus Christ has done. We thank you for who he is and what he came to do. And as we think about our mission to glorify you by being Christ or disciple-making disciples, God, we want to just recognize our neediness before you. And so, Lord, please come and provide what it is that we're lacking. Please meet us and feed us and nourish us and equip us in your word here this morning. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this isn't the first time Jesus and his disciples have been on a boat 
Their ministry is really surrounding the Sea of Galilee. They've done a lot in boats. They've gone here. They've gone there. They've crossed. They've kind of skirted the outskirts of the, 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 the lake. And, and last week you had them kind of skirting maybe a couple miles offshore, but or far enough away that they couldn't be swam, swam to, but close enough that the people on shore could see where they were going. And they ran to go meet him and wouldn't let him have rest. And here now Jesus is going to, uh, after the feeding of the 20,000, he's going to get his disciples away. And Mark begins there for us in verse 45 to say that immediately he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Now John and Matthew also record this event. Matthew's record of this event includes Peter walking on the water. The waves are blowing, the, or the waves are choppy, the wind is blowing. They see Jesus on the water. Peter says, if that's you, let me come out. And he does so, but then takes his eyes off of Jesus and he sinks. John doesn't record that. Mark doesn't record that. But John gives us a very interesting detail about why Jesus immediately sends all of his disciples away. And John tells us that the crowd wanted to make him king by force. Jesus had just fed upwards of 15,000, 20,000 people. These were people that were sheep without a shepherd. These were people who, who their ruler was Herod Antipas, who was a de- degenerate man, an immoral ruler. And they see Jesus not only teaching them the law, proclaiming and preaching them to the, go- the gospel, but then having provided for their physical needs, they wanted to literally, by force, take him and make him king, and he wouldn't have it because it was against and not the time that the Father had set forth for Christ to assume the throne. So Jesus gets his disciples away. Now Mark throughout his gospel has been recording for us instances where Jesus did a miracle and then told those that he did the miracle for, hey, don't go tell anybody. And we're we're left to wonder why. I thought Jesus came to proclaim who he is, to proclaim what he has come to do. And, and, And so we refer to it as the messianic secret. He heals the leopard. Hey, don't go tell anybody. He heals this person or that person. Don't go tell anybody. And part of the reason was the disciples were prone to this messianic complex, if you will, where even in the book of Acts, post-resurrection, the question they have for Christ right before he ascends is, is this now when you're going to assume the kingdom and restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? They wanted political deliverance. They wanted a righteous ruler to sit on David's throne, as did this crowd. And it just wasn't the right time. Jesus gets his disciples out of there. He wants to guard and shield them from this fever pitch of a crowd that is probably willing to carry him and crowd surf him down to Jerusalem and set him on the throne. He wants to get his men away because he's trying to disciple them for a completely different purpose. And it was not a literal physical kingdom at this point that he was inaugurating. It was a spiritual kingdom that will one day be fulfilled in a literal physical kingdom. And so he puts them on the boat. They have been dismissed. And in verse 46, after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. 
And Mark records for us three times in his gospel account where Jesus got away by himself to pray. And all three of these instances are either around a significant event or a significant challenge to the ministry and mission of Jesus. Mark 1.35 was the first one. You might remember it is when he essentially healed all of Capernaum. He's in Peter and Andrew's house. The crowds were pressing in. The whole town came out and he healed everybody. And he got away by himself to pray. Now, the disciples came and found him. It's probably the four or five of them at that point. It wasn't the full 12. Matthew hadn't been called out of his tax booth at this point. And they said, hey, that was great what you did last night. Why don't we get the band together and go on tour and we print t-shirts and and just have everybody buy a bunch of whole, you just heal people and we'll kind of take care of the administrative details. And Jesus goes, that's not why I came. I came to preach. I'm not, I'm not interested in an itinerant healing ministry. I'm interested in proclaiming the gospel and repentance and belief in the gospel because that's what people need far beyond an ailment cured. And so he just goes into the villages and begins teaching and preaching. Now, time number two is here then in Mark chapter 6 where this has been a significant event. And if we allow John to maybe give us a detail that Mark doesn't record, there's now been a significant challenge here as well where the crowd has wanted to make him king. And that's not why he came. It's not the right time. The third instance where Jesus pulls away to pray is in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14.35. It's where he prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. How about a significant challenge to his ministry and his mission? Jesus, in the 100% humanity of his flesh, knew what awaited him. Other gospel accounts are going to record for us that he, he sweated drops of blood because of the anguish of what he knew lied ahead. And here you have him, I believe, in, in this beautifully honest moment of him as fully man, praying to the Father, I don't want this. And yet at the same time, submitting himself in dependence to the Father. But if this is your will, okay. Significant challenge to his ministry. So Jesus pulls away to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Now the language here is is different than when Jesus calmed the storm. Remember when Jesus calmed the storm, there was a great storm that had arisen on the Sea of Galilee. The winds came in from the northeast, descending off the hills, nearly two, 3,000 feet of elevation drop. The northerly winds that were cold air mixing with the humid, warm air from the water just created a, a hurricane-like force. And that was the storm that Jesus was in the boat sleeping and the disciples are terrified going, wait a minute, do you not care if we live or die? And he calms that storm. Here, the language is different here. And there's no indication that the disciples actually feared the storm they found themselves in the midst of. All we have is an indication that they were making headway painfully. So this is probably one of the storms that was not nearly as fierce that they would have been a little bit more accustomed to and it just made travel really difficult. 
They didn't think they were going to die. They just knew they had to row a little bit harder and they had to strain a little bit more to get to their destination. And Jesus sees that they're making headway painfully. And about the fourth watch of the night, which is about 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking out on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now there's some incredible things happening here in the language that Mark uses and what Jesus is saying. And this is part of what we need to be able to see spiritually and not just physically, but Because what Jesus is doing here is he is revealing himself in a similar way that God revealed himself in the Old Testament. He is speaking of himself in a similar way as God the Father spoke of himself in the Old Testament. Jesus in both his actions and his words is leaving absolutely no doubt in the minds of his disciples, I am God. I'm doing what God alone does. I'm claiming the name that God alone has. I am him. And this is the clearest moment of Jesus' self-disclosure as God himself. It's actually the first time that Mark even records Jesus claiming a deity or claiming to be God. So I want to look at some of these things for us because there's some allusions and echoes from the Old Testament. Allusions is is just a word that that we use to describe where the the language says something in the New Testament that alludes back to the Old. And echo is where something is faintly similar in the New Testament that echoes back to the Old. And so here in Job 9... 8 to 11, Job is writing about the otherness of God. He is writing about the godness of God, if you will, where God is so transcendent, Job can't get his mind wrapped around the God he serves. And in 8 through 11, he says this, He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. God made the bear, the Orion, the Pleiades, which are all constellations you and I can go outside in the evening and find. He does great things beyond searching out, marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by and I do not see. He moves on, but I do not perceive. And I have bolded and underlined for you a few things that need to stand out to us. One is the language that Job uses here, trampled the waves of the sea, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the exact same words that Mark uses to refer to what Jesus is doing. So where God alone is trampling the waves of the sea, Mark is recording for us that Jesus is walking on the water. It's the exact same language. And the same thing is true for he passes by. It's the exact same words that Mark records in regards to Jesus wanting to pass by the disciples. So we see here that the the activity of Jesus in walking on the water and in passing by them is a claim to his deity. It's a claim to his godness, but unlike 
where Job says that the Lord passes by and I don't see him, Jesus has come to reveal. He has not come to conceal. And John writes in verse 14 of the first chapter of his gospel account, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word took flesh. We're talking about the incarnation here of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And so where the Lord may have been concealed in the Old Testament, Jesus has come to reveal him now and it's exactly what he's doing here in Mark 6. Further, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known, the He referring to Jesus. What is part of Jesus' ministry is to reveal the Godhead He's a part of. Paul writes in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus Christ takes what is true of the Godhead and reveals Him to us. He's the image of the invisible God The writer of Hebrews says in verse 3 of chapter 1, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus would say Himself, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He is revealing things that were unknown previously about who God is. He is doing the very activity of God and trampling the waves and in passing by and he is self-disclosing to his disciples, I'm it. Now this word passes by is an interesting word and if we, if we just passed by it, you see what I did there? If we just read it briefly, we may be prone that Jesus' uh, idea, or we may have the idea that Jesus' activity was to not be seen. And, I, and I'll confess, I, I read it that way often. But the word passes by is going to be really important for us to understand. It, it literally means to pass by or to move past a reference point. So whatever that reference point is, for you to pass by it is how this word is used. And in Matthew 27, the same word is used uh, in regards to the people who passed by Jesus hanging on the cross and wagged their heads and derided him. Jesus was the reference point that these people passed by. It's used elsewhere in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 30, where there was two blind men hearing that Jesus was passing by them, began shouting to get his attention. The blind men were the reference point that Jesus was passing by. Now, in both of those occurrences, Jesus wasn't going anywhere, and the crowds were very clearly seen wagging their heads and deriding them. The second, Jesus was the one walking by the blind men, and they knew he was there. He wasn't concealing himself. They knew he was there and they were calling out to him as he passed by. So the boat and the disciples are the reference point and Jesus is passing by. And so just the very use of this word leads us to understand that he wasn't trying to conceal himself. He wasn't trying to get from one part of the lake to the other part of the lake without them finding out who he was. There was been a whole lot easier ways to do that. He didn't need to get close to the boat. He could have just gone there. And he's walking on water at this point. All other hindrances are off the table. But there's some Old Testament allusions and echoes to even this language as well, which become really, really important for us. 
Moses in Exodus 33 asked to see the Lord. And the Lord said, okay, you go up on the mountain, you hide in here, and then I'll tell you when to look. And Moses records that the Lord passed by. And the entire point of the Lord in that instance was to not conceal himself, but to reveal himself to Moses. Now, he did so with his back turned to Moses because if Moses had seen the face of the Lord, he would have been consumed and he could not have lived. Elijah, after he had that tremendous experience on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and he called fire down and it consumed both his offering and then he just laid waste to all of the false prophets, he then gets really scared of Jezebel. And goes and runs, and he's crying out to the Lord, wait a minute, Lord, wait a minute. And the Lord says, okay, you know what, you go up on the mountain, and I'm going to pass by you. And we have recorded for us in 1 Kings that the mountains shook, the earth quaked, the fire raged, but the Lord was in the whisper. And it was the Lord passing by. And he passed by Elijah, not to conceal himself, but to reveal himself to him. And that is what Jesus is doing here as he is passing by the disciples. They are the fixed reference points and he intends for them to see him because he is revealing things about himself that were concealed and unknown about the Lord in the Old Testament. But then look at what Jesus said. They thought he was a ghost. They were terrified and immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now these words, it is I, are actually more literally translated, I am. Those are the two words that Jesus said. In our English Bibles, they're they're not incorrect by translating it is I. It's it's better English, if you will. But what Jesus said, the quotation he gave them was, Take heart, I am. Talk about a claim to deity. This is the covenant name of the Lord. When Moses in Exodus 3, 14 said, hey, when I, when I go and do everything you just told me, and the people ask, who shall I say sent them? What did Jesus, or what did, what did the Lord say? I am that I am. You tell them I am sent you. John 8, Jesus gets himself in all sorts of trouble with the Pharisees. Because he makes a statement that says, before Abraham was, I am. Same exact words. Perhaps one of my favorite New Testament instances of Jesus saying these words, I am, is in John chapter 18 when the guards come with Judas to come and arrest Jesus. And there's a band of guards. It wasn't just a few soldiers. It was a whole band of soldiers. And the religious rulers were there. And Judas was there. And he betrays him. And then they, he, he, Jesus asks them the question, who do you seek? They said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he responded, I am. Remember what happened? They fell down. At the sound of his name, the guards fell I just I have to laugh when thinking about what these men had to have been processing in their mind. This band of soldiers. I mean, you get a group of guys together, you can get them worked up into a bit of a frenzy where we feel like we're we're invincible. 
I think that's probably, perhaps the attitude these men had. They They were going to work. They're armored up. They got their shields. They got their swords. They're they're ready for it. And at the sound of two words, they're just laid down. And these are the exact same words that Jesus says to his disciples as he walks by. Do not be afraid. I am. Can you imagine the comfort at his voice? I am. Am, don't be afraid. I am. Guys, I led you here. I am. I'm not a ghost to scare you or hurt you. Guys, remember, I, I calmed the storm last time. Guys, remember, I, I'm the one who just fed the 20,000 people. Guys, you, you got to see spiritually, not just physically. Guys, you got you to put this thing together, and I'm here to walk you through this so that you will understand these things. It's, it's me. I am. And in the clearest disclosure up to this point that Mark records, Jesus has made no bones about it. He does what God alone does. He reveals and passes by in a way that God alone passes by. And he takes the very name of the Lord as his own and says to his men, I am. I'm God. And he's working on them to see spiritually, not just physically. If we think back through the book of Mark and just how this physical, spiritual interplay could could look, when you see with physical eyes, John the Baptist is just a weird-looking man with a strange diet, shouting aimlessly in the wilderness. But when you see spiritually, he's the prophesied forerunner of Jesus. The voice calling out, prepare the way of the Lord. When you see with your physical eyes, Galilean fishermen are unlikely candidates for anything great, which is exactly what the people in Acts 2 said. Are these not men from Galilee? Completely surprised that Galileans would be used in any tremendous way. But when you see spiritually, these men were perfect fit for the task the Lord when you see physically demonic powers appear, or the demonic appears to have real power and authority, when you see spiritually there's absolutely no dualism, Jesus is Lord over all and the strong man, he has been bound, he has been disarmed, and he has been defeated. When you see physically a leper can't change his spots any more than a leopard can change his spots, but when you see spiritually Jesus not only restores the physical body, but relationships as well. When you see physically the paralytic man would live his days in full dependence of others and lost in his sin, and yet when you see spiritually, Jesus not only has the power and authority to heal the man physically, but spiritually as well, and he forgave the man's sins. When you see physically a tax collector, or better yet, his, his band, his cohort of sinning friends are the very last people a rabbi or teacher would pick. When you see spiritually, Jesus came for those who are sick. When we see physically, those are the last people we'd pick, right? If you got a church treasurer position, you think Matthew's a likely candidate? Oh, so tell us about your former life. Well, I, I stole money from people. 
they gave it to me, and, and I, I extorted them, and then I took some back for myself. Oh, yeah, we're, we're gladly put you forward for a church vote. That'll be great. We'll get your resume printed, get it handed around. Everybody should know that you're an extortioner. When we see physically, these things just don't add up, and yet when you see spiritually, Jesus came to heal people and offer forgiveness. When you see physically, conformity to man-made religious rules and regulations appears pious or religious. But when you see spiritually, you see that you can obey man's rules and completely miss the heart of God. When you see physically sowing seeds, proclaiming the gospel is simply a fruitless endeavor, or at least one that meagerly produces results. But when you see spiritually, sowing seed is exactly what we have been called to do, and it's God who takes the seed, it's God who makes it grow, and it's God who grows it exponentially greater than how it began. When you see physically, a storm can't be calmed, it just has to be weathered. When you see spiritually, Jesus has the authority to calm any storm, yet may choose to lead you safely through it, then remove you out of it. When you see physically spending time in jail and ultimately being beheaded for doing what is right isn't wise, and you lose everything. When you see spiritually the only things that you have lost are temporal, and what you have gained is eternal, if not the greatest value. When you see physically, 20,000 people can't be fed without money or resources. This is what the disciples were. This is where they were. And, and, and I believe their compassion. Hey, Jesus, send the crowds away. Go give, them, go give them time to go buy food. They're hungry. When you see spiritually, Jesus richly provides and serves the needy and the servers. When you see physically, baby bottles for PMI are cute. Maybe just a small drop in a very large bucket. How are we going to stem the tide of abortion by putting change in a baby bottle? One child at a time. And when you see spiritually, God will use your gift and generosities in ways that you can't understand. When you see physically that neighbor or that coworker who's just a royal pain in the backside, it's to be avoided at all costs. They're mowing your yard, I'm mowing, or they're mowing their yard. You know what? I'm mowing mine tomorrow. I don't even want to wave. When you see spiritually, they need Christ. And you're his ambassador in their lives. When you see physically fall festival games and summer jubilee tents are fun, but not high impact. But when you see spiritually, your investment of time and resources in these areas will never be wasted. When you see physically, there's no hope for a family member who has always rejected the gospel. When you see spiritually, our hope is in a God who saves and has 100% of the time taken cold, dead hearts and made them alive in Christ. When you see physically that temptation you continually battle, that sin that seems to always trip you up, it's a fight you'll always lose. When you see spiritually you have been given the defensive armor to wear and the offensive weapons to wield and your victory is always or already secured in Christ, he breaks the power 
of canceled sin and sets the prisoners free. When you see physically, you may wonder if you'll ever change. And when you see spiritually, you begin to draw near to God even more and celebrate his work in your life as he changes you. We have to see spiritually, not just physically. And so how? Before we sing, let me just answer the question, how? Well, we need to pray and ask the Lord to give us eyes to see. We need to spend time in his word and have our minds renewed. We continually draw near to him as those who are needy. And I'll just tell you right now, those were the three application points from last week too. This isn't real complicated. Is it often difficult? Yes. But is it complicated? No. Find a way to maybe remind yourself. Put a band-aid on your finger. You see that band-aid, you see that string, or maybe you you go and you buy a ring that you wear that, that when you see it, it's a reminder to pray for physical or for the spiritual eyes to see. I know people who have bought swim goggles and have put them places. It's just a, a lens that they theoretically put on. It's a way to think about their eyesight being differently. You can set reminders on your phone. I mean, we, we have so many resources at our disposal to remind us of things. These are valuable things to be reminded of. We have to be people that see and learn to see spiritually and not just physically. So would you stand this morning? Part of our spiritual eyesight is continually putting the gospel back in the forefront. It's continually reminding ourselves of what is true, of what Christ has done, of what is true, of who he is. And so as we conclude this morning, we are just going to sing the gospel. That our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And alone and by himself, he is our cornerstone. And he makes the weak strong. And he gives us the eyes to see. Would you join us?